Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, as we continue our study through the book of Philippians, we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 this morning. Now, I mentioned to you on Mother's Day, and I know we're still trying to get to know each other a little bit, I, I mentioned to you on Mother's Day that it's my normal habit to preach through books of the Bible, and because of that, I don't normally stop for special occasions. If we did that, we would continually be stopping, so I just plow through books of the Bible, no matter what the occasion, and uh, that normally works out well. I needed to remind you of that again today, lest any of you fathers be offended by the sermon title, which is, Look Out for the Dogs. <laughs> I'm just thankful it didn't fall on Mother's Day. I think uh, you guys can maybe handle this, but we are going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3 on this warning that the Apostle Paul gives, this very strong warning to look out for the dogs. I'll never forget about five years ago sitting in my church office in Dallas, Texas when I was studying and received a call from a deacon. It was one of our oldest deacons. He'd been a member of the church for over 40 years, a really kind and wise and godly man. I answered the phone and he started with these words. Now, Josh, you know I love you. <laughs> now, anytime someone starts a conversation by clarifying that they love you, you know that you're about to get it. Now, Josh, you know I love you. And then he went on to say this. But you have to learn that you do not have to fight every battle. He knew me, and he knew that I like a good battle. I have a little fight in me, and uh, when I see something going on, as opposed to just leaving it, I'm usually the first one to jump into it. I, I want to resolve issues. I want to take care of things. But there are times in which it's better just to stay out. And then he followed by saying this. He said, Josh, a bulldog can always whoop a skunk, but it's just not worth it. Now, let me tell you, there's some real wisdom in that line right there. I mean, there's a Father's Day sermon right there for you. Not every battle is worth fighting. You have to learn to discern what skunks are worth going after and what skunks you just leave alone. I think we learn a lot about this from the Apostle Paul. I mean, I mean just imagine Paul's line of work. He planted and pastored churches for a living. He met a lot of skunks. He was involved in a lot of controversies. You just read his letters, there's all kinds of things going on, but Paul seemed to have the ability to discern which battles were worth fighting and which battles were better left alone. I'll tell you, if you read all of Paul's letters and study his life, you will come to realize that there is one battle that Paul was always going to fight. There is one opponent that Paul was always going to stand against. The Apostle Paul was always ready to defend the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and oppose anyone who distorted it. And I would say half of Paul's ministry was standing for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You see it in all of his ministry and almost every one of his letters. 
And there was one specific group that the Apostle Paul was always going after. He calls them out multiple times, even calls specific men out by name. It was a group known as the Judaizers. These are a group of devout Jews who preached that in order to truly be saved, you had to also be circumcised. And the way they worked is this, is that Paul would come in, he would preach the gospel to the Gentiles saying, the only thing you must do to be saved is trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Then right as he left town, the Judaizers would come in and say, well, well, Paul was almost right The only thing he forgot to say is this, that if you really want to be saved, you must also obey all of the Jewish rituals. Specifically, you cannot be saved unless you've been circumcised like the Jews. I mean, this was a significant issue. So much so that in Acts 15, you see the joining together of all the apostles who themselves were debating this issue. So they decide to gather together in Acts 15 for the Jerusalem council and make a decision once and for all. Do you have to be circumcised to be a believer in Jesus Christ? The apostle Paul showed up with Barnabas and with Titus and gave a report of all his missionary journeys through Gentile regions and said, listen, I'm the one out there preaching to the Gentiles and I'm here to tell you these uncircumcised Gentiles are giving their life to Jesus Christ and being radically saved. At that moment, they decided that they could not add anything to the gospel. They must continue to preach that you are saved by grace through faith alone in the work of Christ. And Paul's entire second missionary journey, starting in Acts 16, was to go back to all the Gentile churches and preach to them this message once again. But if you look at a letter like Galatians, you realize that the entire book was written Because the same thing happened again. Paul went, he preached the gospel of the Galatians, they were saved. And then right after he left, a group came in and distorted the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in Galatians 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is a prisoner on a boat on his way to Rome and they stop by Crete and he's there with Titus and he notices that in Crete there's a church that's been planted but they're being ravaged by false doctrine so Paul leaves Titus with one job, raise up godly men, put them in place over the church, why? So they can protect the church from false doctrine. Paul writes to Titus and says this, there are many who are insubordinate, they're empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Listen to what Paul says about these Judaizers. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Paul is not messing around when it comes to these who are distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was a problem in Philippi as well. We know from what it says in Philippians 3 that when Paul first planted the church in Philippi, he warned them that this was going to happen. These false teachers always come to those that they can prey upon. And Paul knew that he was going to leave and they were going to come in. That's exactly why he says what he says in Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Let's look at it together. If you are there at Philippians 3, say amen. Amen. 
Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now there are two things happening in these three verses. The first one is a warning. There's four commands in these three verses. The first command is to rejoice. The next three commands are the same one. Do you see it there in verse 2? Look out, look out, look out. It is very evident that Paul, by repeating this command, is giving them a very strong warning to every member of the church. Listen, it's not just talking to the preachers. Every member, look out. There are false teachers out there, and they will lead you astray. They will hurt and and disrupt entire families, as it says in Titus 1. So look out for them. There is a warning. And then after the warning, there is this contrast in verses 2 and 3. In which Paul tells us the way in which we identify these false teachers. You say, well, what does this have to do with the book of Philippians as a whole? Now, let me tell you this. This is very important. Now, I've told you from the very beginning, the whole point of the book of Philippians is found in Philippians 1 verse 27. In which Paul is pleading with the church to stand firm in one spirit and to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Listen, this is the message for the church of Jesus Christ. We exist to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are a gospel advancing people. If we are not advancing the gospel, we are not doing what God has called us to do. So Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. But listen, the reason what he says in chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 is so important is this. Is because striving together for the gospel demands that we stand together against false gospels. Did you hear that? Striving together for the gospel demands that we stand together against false gospels. There there are false gospels out there. Have you watched TBN lately? There are false gospels out there. And the only way that we can strive side by side is if we're also standing against being able to identify and looking out for the false gospels. You say, well, how do you do that? We've got to identify them and we contradict them. So so there's two things I want you to see this morning. First of all, I want you to know why we must identify these false gospels. And the other thing I want you to know is how we identify these false gospels. First of all, why is it That we need to look out for these false teachers and gospels. Let me give you three reasons and why. Write these down. The first one is this. We must look out for them because they are discouraging. They're discouraging. Paul begins with his first command. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now you know from chapter 1 verse 25 that Paul is concerned about the joy of of the church in Philippi. Listen, we're going to talk about this more in chapter 4. I'm going to do a whole sermon on this. But, but can I just tell you something? God cares about your joy. 
God longs for you to experience his joy. Your joy matters to him. And the reason he is always calling you to holiness and always calling you to intimacy is because he knows that the greatest joy that you can ever receive is in the intimacy with Jesus Christ. Paul cares about their joy. So he not only commands them to rejoice, but he shows them what it is that's going to keep them from rejoicing. And what it is, is a false gospel. I mean, the gospel is good news. The angels appeared before the shepherds and said in Luke 2, I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all people. And the reason is, is because the gospel, listen, and only the gospel that removes the weight and the guilt and the condemnation and the power of sin. Everything that is robbing you of your joy is somehow related to sin. And so it is that God, through the gospel, has provided a way for the weight and the burden and the condemnation and the guilt and the shame to be removed from you. And what false teachers always do is they add the guilt and the shame and the condemnation back on you. Because they replace grace with law. They don't allow you to rest in the good grace of God. Instead, they're constantly putting the law back upon you, making you think that the only way you're going to be right with God is if you do this and this and this. They're just like the Pharisees in Luke eleven forty six, when Jesus calls them out and says that you are heaping heavy burdens upon people. It's exactly what they're doing. This is the reason you will never meet a happy legalist. Some of you grew up in legalistic churches. There's not a ton of joy in a legalistic church. One of the things I pray for our church over and over is that when people walk into Prince Avenue Baptist Church, I want them to think this. It must be good to know Jesus Christ. I want there to be joy in this room. I, I also want you to be awake, and I'm not confident of that this morning. <laughs> this, is, this is a rough one this morning. I'm telling you, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Pass out some Wheaties in Sunday school, but I want you to know that the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. But you will never meet a happy legalist because a legalist knows that they're never quite doing enough to make God happy. And if you live with the constant thought that God is never happy with you, you will never experience the joy of the Lord. And the gospel wants to remove that and say, God is not happy with you because of you. He's happy with you because what has he's done for you through Jesus Christ. These false teachers are discouraging. But not only that, they're dangerous. They're dangerous. Write that down. Why do we need to look out for them? They're discouraging and they're dangerous. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. In other words, he, he already talked to them about this when he was there, and then he's reminding them of it again, and he says, it's, it's no problem for me to talk to you about this again, and it's safe for you. What he's saying is, th this is a matter of safety, that these false gospels are actually dangerous. They undermine our faith. That's why in Galatians 1, Paul says, how quickly you've deserted Jesus Christ. Because to believe one of these false gospels is to leave Christ. To add something to the gospel of Jesus Christ is a dangerous thing. It's dangerous because, listen, eternity's at stake. 
If you preach someone a gospel that says you need Jesus plus you need this and this and this, then you're getting people to believe a gospel that is not the gospel and sending people to hell thinking they're going to heaven. This is a dangerous issue. It's discouraging, it's dangerous, and listen, it's also demonic. False gospels are demonic. So where do you get that? Well, we'll look at verse 2. Here's the three warnings. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul very carefully chooses three words to call these men who are preaching a false gospel. And by the way, he's not just referring to the message they're preaching, he's talking about them. First thing he says, he says, look out for the dogs. Now, it's important for us to think about, this is going to be very difficult for some of us, but it's important for us to think about dogs the way they thought about dogs in the first century, meaning they were not receiving $80 oatmeal baths. They were not going and getting their nails clipped. They were not receiving food that cost a couple hundred dollars a month. Organic. From free range chickens. They weren't doing this. They were scavengers. You do, you know many of you do this. They, that's another sermon I'll get to some other day. They were scavengers. They were street animals. They were regarded as completely unclean you would have not allowed them to be in your house they would have eaten the leftovers that you would have had now the irony is this is that the jews loved to refer to the gentiles as dogs because they saw them as unclean before god what paul does is he calls out the jews who were adding to the gospel for the gentiles and making them feel guilty and said no no no, no. you are not the dogs listen they're the dogs they're the dogs, because while they're saying you're unclean, you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and they are unclean because they know nothing of true righteousness. He says, look out for them. Look out for the dogs. They're going to heap guilt upon you. They're going to rob you of your joy. He also calls them evildoers. They're pre this is what's so difficult. They preach righteousness. They preach holiness, they preach godliness, but the subtlety of what they preach is that they're constantly telling you everything you must do instead of telling you what Christ has already done. As a result, Paul calls them evildoers. And the last thing he says is this, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, th this is a really subtle, but funny thing that Paul does here because he takes the Greek word for circumcision which is katatome which would have been known to them and he replaces it with a word paratome katatome means to cut around paratome means to shred into pieces and what Paul says is this there are these who are telling you in order for you to be saved you must receive circumcision what I'm telling you is what they're actually doing is simply mutilating your flesh for no godly good he calls them out as evil dangerous robbers of joy and mutilators of the flesh in other words they are the exact opposite of everything they say they are and three times paul says to the church look out look out look out we don't tolerate them 
We try to discern as best as we can, and we do not simply leave them alone. If we know anyone who's being ravaged by false doctrine and false teachers, we call it out. So that's why, because we see the weight and danger of this. But here's the second thing that's addressed, and mainly from verse 3. How do we identify them? Now, this is, this is important. How do I identify these false teachers? And that's exactly the point of verse 3. Verse 3 says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now here's what Paul does. Paul shows us how to identify false teachers by giving us a contrast. He shows us what it is to be a true believer. What is true salvation? You say, well, how do you tell a counterfeit? Well, you tell a counterfeit not by looking at the counterfeit, but by looking at the real thing. And when you see the counterfeit in light of the real thing, you start to see what's wrong. Now, Paul says the most amazing thing. Here's Paul, a Jew of Jews, which we're going to talk about next week in the following verses, who is speaking to Gentiles who've been born again, and he says this, we are the circumcision." Not just the Jews, but you and I who have received Jesus Christ, we are the circumcision. We are the true believers. And in so doing, Paul clarifies the nature of true salvation. I want to give you three quick little statements, and I want to encourage you to write these down. Because it is through understanding true salvation that you're going to be able to identify and look out, as we're commanded to do, for false gospels. Here's the first one. True salvation rests in Christ. Get that down. True salvation rests in Christ. Paul says, we are the circumcision. You say, well, Paul, that that doesn't make sense because you're a circumcised Jew and they're uncircumcised Gentiles. How can you say that we are the circumcision? Because what Paul is saying is that true circumcision that is needed is a circumcision of the heart. The surgery that is needed is a surgery on the heart. That's why Romans 2 says this. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God. In other words, you can do as many external things as you think you can do, but until God has done a supernatural work in your heart by his spirit, you cannot be saved. It is about something that Christ must do. And false teachers are always making salvation an external work of man. But the story of the gospel is this, you can't save yourself. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Something must be done for you and something must be done in you. So when Paul says we are the circumcision, what he's saying is this, is that God has done a work in my heart and God has done a work in your heart and we're united by the work of the Spirit that has been done in us through Jesus Christ. I mean, think about what it says in Ephesians 2. Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. In other words, you have as much ability to save yourself as Lazarus had ability to raise himself. Was it possible 
for Lazarus, who was dead, to raise himself from the dead? No. Is it possible for you to save yourself? No. Why? Because you are not simply spiritually sick. You are born spiritually dead with no spiritual pulse. And until the Spirit of God infuses life in you, you cannot be saved. This is why Romans 5, 6, 6 says, Why we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for us. Salvation is God doing for you what you could not do for yourself. And what we celebrate when we come and celebrate Jesus Christ, is we celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. We rest in what Christ, listen, has already done. We rest in the perfect life of Christ because the only way that you can get to heaven is if according to your account, there is perfect righteousness. So you know what? Christ lived perfectly on your behalf. And the only way that your sins can be forgiven is if you die for them. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus died in your place. And the only way that you can have eternal life is if that life is given to you, and it was given to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the reason that Jesus hung on the cross and declared, it is finished because the work that needed to be done for you to be saved has been done by Christ. We rest in the finished work of Christ. He has lived the life you had to live. He died the death you deserve to die. And he rose that you might have eternal life. It is all of Christ. And we rest in what Christ has done. Knowing that I can't add anything to that. True salvation rests in Christ. Let me give you the second one. True salvation is received by faith. True salvation rests in Christ and true salvation is received by faith. Write that down. Salvation is a gift to be received. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the reason he says here that we are the circumcision, why? Because God has done something in our heart and we worship by the Spirit of God, meaning that what has happened to us is new life has been born into us by the Spirit. You say, well, how does that happen? How is it that we are born of the Spirit? Listen to John 1.12. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God, not born of the flesh, but of the Spirit. To as many who have received him. What he's saying is this, in order for you to be saved, you must simply by faith receive the gift that God has offered to you, the gift of the righteousness of Christ credited to your account by his perfect life and criminal's death. You can't do anything. You can't add this. You simply trust in what Christ has done for you on your behalf. And it is at that moment in which the Spirit of God energizes us. We begin to worship by the Spirit of God. We begin to treasure Jesus Christ. John 6, 63 says, It is the Spirit that gives life, and the flesh profits nothing. 
You see, this is where it's so subtle because the true gospel says this. You cannot save yourself. You're spiritually dead, but Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection, has done everything that needed to be done in order for you to be saved. And the only thing you must do is throw yourself at the mercy of God and declare, I am trusting what Christ has done, not anything I have done. And by faith, I receive what Christ has done as my own. It must be received by faith. It is not enough to know it. It is not enough to be even be able to share it. You must have come to a moment in your life when you have come to the end of yourself. You know that you can't do anything to save you. And you simply say, I am resting in what Christ has done for you. I trust that what Christ did is enough. We rest and we receive by faith. The last one is this. True salvation rest in Christ. True salvation is received by faith. And the last one is this. True salvation rejoices in Christ. Look at what it says. And we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I love this. I love this. I love this. This forms everything I think about corporate worship. What he's saying is this. If, listen to this. If salvation is the work of Christ then Christ gets all the glory. If it is all a result of what Christ is in, then Christ gets all of the glory. We boast in Christ. The reason I want every song we sing to be a song that is centered on Christ is because we believe that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And the only one that gets the glory and the only one that gets the credit is Jesus Christ. This is why Revelation 5.12 says Christ is worthy to receive the honor and the praise and the glory forever. Why? Because the only reason that we have a relationship with God is because of what Christ has done for us. I was attending a funeral many years ago, and it was a funeral of a man who I knew, knew the Lord. And the preacher got up and spent the entire time at the funeral just talking about how wonderful this man was. And he was a good man. I'm not denying that. But from beginning to end, every testimony, all of the sermon was focused on this man. It was such a significant moment for me in my thought of pastoral ministry because I walked out of that room saying this to myself. Whenever you preach a funeral sermon of a believer, make sure that the hero of the story is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hero of the story. If there is any good you accomplish with your life, Jesus is the hero. You you don't want to be the hero of your own story. We do not boast or have confidence in the flesh. Our boasting is in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. I'll tell you one way you can always point out a false gospel and a false teacher. They are never focusing constantly on Christ. They're always bringing it back to you. Well, if you want this, if you want this, if you want this, do this. Well, if you'll do this, if you'll do this, if you'll do this, you'll receive this. I'll tell you, this, this happened to me 20 years ago, and it still stirs up righteous anger in me. I had a very good friend who had a son that was born with Down syndrome, precious little boy. 
they went to a pastor who told them that if they had enough faith, their son could be healed from Down syndrome. Thousands of problems with this. Let me tell you a couple. First of all, it fails to see this child as a gracious gift of God perfectly formed in the womb of the mother. It causes this family to see that this child is a mistake that they don't want. It also heaps guilt upon this family, making them believe that the reason their son is like this is because they don't have enough faith. And if they had more faith, he'd be healed. Well, guess what? He wasn't healed. And they left feeling as if it's their fault because they didn't have enough faith. These false messages are always bringing it back to you. If you'll simply do this, you'll get this. If you do this, you'll get this. Listen, God wants to give you this, but you must do this. And then you don't get that. And you have the weight of condemnation because you didn't do something right. And the true message of salvation is that every blessing in the heavenly places already belongs to you in Jesus Christ. And the great treasure of salvation is not the hope that if I give my life to Jesus, I'm going to get rich. It's that I'm already rich. Because I've got the greatest treasure that anyone could ever have in having Jesus Christ. False teachers are always robbing Jesus of the glory by trying to point it back to you. But but there's one last word I want to make sure that you get. It says, we glory in Christ, look at this and I'll be done, and put no confidence in the flesh. You've heard that evangelism explosion question, if you were raised in church, you've certainly heard this. The question is this, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and he would say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Now the good thing about that question is is that it makes you ask a question of confidence. What makes you feel confident that you're going to get to heaven? And it's possible for you to have confidence. It's possible for you to be able to rest in what Christ has done. But where is your confidence? The answer is, my confidence is is in what Christ has done for me, and I simply believe by faith that Christ's life and death was credited to my account, and I'm resting in what Christ did for me. I counseled a lady many years ago who was really struggling with assurance of salvation. She said this to me. She says, I just lay in bed at night, and I pray the sinner's prayer over and over and over again, just making sure that it's worked. Here's the problem. You know where her confidence is? Her confidence is in a sinner's prayer. She's hoping that if she says it just right, then she's going to be fine. And what I said to her is instead of resting in your prayer, why don't you simply rest in the promise of God that if you will trust what Christ has done, you will be saved. It's simply a matter of trust. Trusting in what Christ has done. This is why Ephesians 2 says, it is by grace you are saved through faith. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. My question for you is this. Where is your confidence? 
Are you resting in the work of Christ? Are you confident that you are saved because of what Christ has done for you? If you are having a lack of confidence this morning, can I plead with you to come and trust Christ? Come and let one of us talk to you about what it means to trust Christ. Would you please surrender your life fully to Jesus Christ? Can I just, I want to say this to all of you, but can I plead with the dads on this Father's Day? The greatest gift that you can give your family is a real relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't have to fake it. Be a real man of God by trusting Christ. But let me ask you this. Are you tolerating any false doctrine and false teaching? And it is so easy to turn on the TV and be entertained by those who are leading others astray, to know those who are being led astray and not speaking out against it. Listen, there is one battle always worth fighting, and it's the fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are going to strive together, we must stand together. And I pray by God's grace, we will do both. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.